0: John's going to actually address fathers in the passage that we cover here. Let me read the text to you. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus's name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. Let's pray. Dear Lord, help us to open our hearts to what you're telling us from your word. May your word be clear and focused in our minds. And may we believe and obey everything you've said in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 2, 12, I'm quoting from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. Here, children refers to the entire church. John was an elderly apostle, and I believe that that's accurate historically, that John lived to be very old, and that he wrote 1 John when he was an older man, one of the disciples who was with Jesus, and who heard him and saw his miracles, and was taught by him, and was there all through what had happened so far in church history. And often John refers to the Christians as little children. It's an endearing and loving way to speak to us as the church. We're little children. And it's interesting, it says here that he's writing, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus's name. It's interesting the fundamental simplicity of the gospel and that God reminds us of things that we always need to know. This is what we believe. This is what we emphasize. This is what we preach. This morning I was thinking of Acts 17.21 where Paul was there in Athens and it said that the Athenians and visitors had nothing better to do than to teach and debate some new thing. So you have to have something new, or they don't want to listen to you. But the Christian church is not like that. We're not here because we have to have something new. As God's dear flock, as his little children, it's precious to us that the elderly apostle reminds us that our sins are forgiven. We should never think that we've progressed to the point where we got to have something better than that to preach. No, we don't need anything better than the forgiveness of sins. Something we'll always need to know. We don't need some new thing. This is what's been so damaging to the evangelical movement and the church as a whole. Pastors have gotten the wrong idea that in order to make a mark, in order to be important, in order to be successful, they have to come up with something new. They have to go to the latest seminar. They have to get the latest philosophy, the latest movement, the latest idea that people want to hear. One pastor that I see comes on our local news channel every day with the winner's minute. The winner's minute always some new ph- philosophical idea. Imagine your optimal future and believe that. And then they quote some secular philosophy. Well, that's maybe new, at least to us. It should be because that's not what we hear. But what about things like your sins have been forgiven? What's going to be important to us when Christ returns at the end of the age? Is it going to be that we imagined an optimal future and worked to achieve it? Or that our sins have been forgiven? Beloved, we don't need a new thing. We need the forgiveness of sins. Diane has been doing a prayer request, and there have been some very difficult ones. We just mentioned the sorrow and unbelievable torment of, my, these people must be going through friends of our friends, the Coy's. And uh, she said, what verse should I put on there? And I quoted some verse, and she said, we've used that one. (laughs) I said, we can't wear out a verse. (laughs) Christians continue to be comforted by the same truths. And I promise you, that at the very end, on the day of judgment, when all of history comes to its conclusion, the truth that John talks about in his old age, little children, your sins have been forgiven, will be more important than we can possibly imagine. Dear ones, if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, it's because your sins have been forgiven forgiven. It says, because, the Greek there, hati, I have a slide coming up about that, and it's both a reference of cause and of emphasis. It's declarative and causal. Our sins are forgiven, and this is true because of the person and work of Christ. This is emphatic. This is something that will never outgrow. We need to know this. We need to believe this. God is gracious and he forgives sins. It says in 1 John 1, 9, that I preached earlier in in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're going to see later in the application, not only... Does Jesus provide the ground for the forgiveness of our sins? He, as our high priest in heaven, continually advocates for it. Satan never stops doing his dirty job of being the accuser of the brethren. But our high priest advocates before God the Father for the forgiveness of our sins. I can't think of anything that we need worse than that. So we need to know the ground of this forgiveness. Now it says here, because of, Hati in the Greek, because of Jesus' name. Now Jesus' name signifies his person, his character, his work, his nature. The name isn't just a word that we'd say so we know oh, we're talking about Jesus. The name in the Hebraic way of thinking signifies the very nature and character of the person. Notice, for example, in the Old Testament, sometimes people got a new name based on something that was their promise, an event, a thing that they did. Jacob the heel grabber, and he lived that way until later he was given the name Israel. The name of Jesus signifies who he is, what he's done, his promises to us, his love for us, his deity, his humanity, his resurrection from the dead, his promises. It says in John 1, 29, John the Baptist says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away sin. Now, I have a summary slide. These words here, because, are all the same clause in the Greek language, hati. And as I said, it's both causal and declarative. He says, because your sins have been forgiven, because you have known the one from the beginning, because you've conquered the evil one, because you've known the father. And then again, because you've known the one from the beginning, and then because you are strong, and conquered the evil one. There's a perfect tense use often here. Something that God did continues to be true. I'm totally convinced that these basic truths that are emphatic, that are necessary, that are definitive, that define who we are as Christians, are things that we live believing, remembering, thinking about, and that we don't need some new philosophy. There's not some new thing that some preacher dreamed up that's going to solve all the problems and make the church some whatever. I remember the one I wrote a book about. So this fellow was going to have church in a box, business in a box, clinic in a box. We're going to go all around the country, and we're going to Christianize all the world, and we're going to use the government to help us do it. Guess what happened? Nothing. Went down in flames. Our message is not clinic in a box, business in a box. Our message is the forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ, who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. As John got older, He didn't get off-message. I pray that that would be true for me. I'm definitely getting older. I pray that I don't get off-message. Your sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. And it's all because of what God's done for us and through us by his grace. 1 John 2, 13a. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. Have come to know here is in the perfect tense. It's something that happened in the past through the gospel, through conversion, and it's something that continues to be true. Think again of those Athenians in Acts 17:21. Oh, let's talk about some new thing. We got to have a new thing. We got to have something different. The new thing for the Christian is the new covenant. The new covenant was inaugurated in his blood, according to Hebrews. The new covenant is what Christians have been under from the day of Pentecost until Christ returns. And we need to know and believe and preach and emphasize new covenant truths. The servant is... Simple, because John is simple. I like that about him. Something I can understand. Forgiveness of sins, knowledge of God, victory over Satan. Sums up what we have in the new covenant. From the beginning, reminds us, there are echoes, there's reviews and previews. The echo is of 1 John one. 1. John 1-1, and Genesis 1-1 from the beginning. And so here are these fathers. Now, let me talk about this a little bit. I think John is addressing mature Christians in the fellowship, but he's not excluding anybody. See, so if you took this totally exclusive, for example, we just talk about male older persons. But we're not excluding mature women. And the same with sons. We're not excluding the fact that ladies are those who know the one who's from the beginning and have victory over the evil one and whose sins are forgiven. But he is giving some honor to these older men in the congregation. Just like today, we honor fathers, for Father's Day. We're not excluding anybody. We're just saying, thank God for fathers. And as Christians, we wanna emphasize that. We think it's important that we have fathers who love us, who teach us, who care for us, who look out for our best interests. Maybe you're the fathers. That's what we wanna do for our children. My father's no longer on the scene of history But I don't know anybody in my life that cared about me and my well-being more than my father did. And a man that I admire and love, and it was my honor and privilege to talk at his memorial service in 2001. And what I did was I had a little bitty card, you know, just a little handwritten, and I told stories about my father and his wisdom through things that he said to me. For example, let me just, little Father's Day here. I went to Iowa State to study chemical engineering, and I'd gotten A's in high school, and I was supposedly a good student, so I went off to Iowa State and started in, and, oh, uh, whoops, you have to actually study? This is hard. And I came back with some grades, and they were not good. And I thought, I had lost my confidence, and I thought, I can't do this, it's too much, it's too hard. Dad wouldn't let me have a car, even though I owned one, the first year, because he was afraid I wouldn't study. So I begged to ride from somebody so I could get back to the farm in Iowa. And I still remember where we were, stand, where we were standing, in the grove, on the farm, I found him out there working with some pigs and went out to talk to my dad. And I said, Dad, these students at Iowa State University are smarter than me. It's hard. I'm not doing very good. And I didn't mean to be insulting to him as a farmer because it's a high thing to do. I said, Dad, I'm here for you to train me to be a farmer. I want to Farm. Well, I was the oldest son. He had younger kids coming up. And Dad said, I thought he'd be happy. And Dad said, No way. No way. We didn't send you to Iowa State to come back here to the farm. And I don't believe they're smarter than you. I don't believe that for one second. And I can't quote him because this is church. (laughs) But he said, You get back there and work. I'm not accepting this. I told the story at my dad's funeral. My mom had never heard it before until the funeral. I thought, oh my. I went back and I started studying. I studied weekends, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday, studied, studied, studied. We had a quarter system. At the end of the quarter, the grades came back and I had an A, average. Dad was right. I had to learn how to work. See, my dad loved me, and he knew I could do it, and he sent me back there, and he wouldn't accept what I had to say. So I love my dad, and I honor him. And I wish I could be as good a dad as my dad was. But dads will stand there and say, this is what you need. John is the old man here in this story the elderly apostle. He's telling us what we need to know. Your sins are forgiven, and you know God. That's it? Well, you've conquered the evil one. He'll add that. Your sins are forgiven, and you know God. So my dad told me what I needed to hear when I needed to hear it. It Made me love him all the more. And may God help us to do that. You know God. Sometimes we get afraid, like I did in school. And we want to bail out. And we start thinking, I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to be a decent husband or wife. I'm never going to be a good dad. I'm definitely not going to be a good Christian. This is just awful. How did I get into this? And John tells us, your sins are forgiven, and you know God. Is that true for you? Your sins are forgiven, and you know God. You know God. The one who's from the beginning is Jesus Christ. Although the truth applies to the Father as well. It says in 1 John 1, 1, what was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The tangibility of the incarnation. Jesus Christ, fully human and fully God, who was born of a virgin, who was the one who created the universe out of nothing. Thus he's from the beginning. This is repeated in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 and 3. And we need to say these things. We need to talk about them. We need to remind ourselves of them. We can't hear it too much. He who's from the beginning. The creator of the universe came into this world. He loves us. He gave his life for us so that our sins can be forgiven. Knowing Christ and knowing forgiveness go together. Do you know Christ? And do you know that your sins are forgiven? Then he says, second part of verse 13, I'm writing to you, young man, because you have had victory over the evil one. Now, I'm interpreting this as applying to all Christians, but with special emphasis to the people addressed? The fathers, the young men, not to exclude anybody. Young men are the ones that we send to war, right? Young men like to fight. I know I did. Too much. And maybe the young men are prone to that. I'm not trying to conjecture about that. But what John wants the young man and all of us to remember is that we have victory over the evil one. The enemy, the adversary, Satan, the devil. He's the accuser. He's always going to attack us. He's always going to lie to us. He's always going to get us to doubt the gospel. That's what he wants to do. He wants us to think, oh, I can't trust that my sins are forgiven. I got to work on it myself. I need to work, work, work to be a better person. Do more, try harder. Do you know that's the devil's story? Do more, try harder. You can't trust that God did it for you. See, it says in 1 John 5, 18 and 19, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Next week, I think I'm preaching next week. I know that'll get sorted out. We had a little delay because of my voice. It's back. It's a scary thing to lack a voice when you're a preacher. Anyhow, when I do preach on the next section, we're going to talk about the word cosmos, world, and its range of meaning. And I'm going to tell you a story about me getting that range of meaning wrong and heading off into air for five years that it took a miracle to get out of. And don't tell me the meaning of the words in the Bible don't matter. They do. I'll prove it to you. The next time I preach about cosmos, but this world in its, to give you a preview, rebellion and alienation from God. This whole system of darkness is under Satan. Okay. The victory that these young men and all of us have over the evil one comes at conversion. We'll see that. We can, let me just read it. 1 John 5, 18 and 19. You can turn to it if you wish. 1 John 5, 18 and 19. We know that no one who is born of God's sins. In other words, we don't live a life of continual alienation and rebellion against God. Our sins have been forgiven. But he who was born of God, speaking of Christ, keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So God snatched us out of this cosmos that's in rebellion against God, that's alienated from God, and that is having enemy status against the things of God, so much so we should not love the world. Talk about what that means. So we have victory through conversion and the blood atonement so that we're no longer under the evil one. This victory happened at a point in time at our conversion. Its effects continue in the present. Dr. Marshall says John is thinking of the victory over the evil one, which takes place at conversion, a victory due to the power of Jesus who conquered Satan by his death and resurrection. So, as I've said, because this applies to young men, which it does, and if you're a young man, then you think about this. I know I needed to, but if you're somebody else who's a Christian, you think about it too. We've all had victory over the evil one. It says in 1 John 5, 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. When Satan's accusations come at us relentlessly, our answer is, I believe in Jesus Christ, who died for my sins and who was raised from the dead, who ascended to heaven, who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high and ever lives to make intercession for me, I'll believe what he says. Oh, yes, I'll believe what he says. Satan's not going to change his tune. He is the accuser of the brethren. When John 2, 14, first part of the verse. I've written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father, I've written to you, fathers, because you've come to know the one who is from the beginning. So John uses repetition. That's his teaching style. That's how he gets us to know and to learn and to pay attention. Children, again, denotes all his readers. Remember, Jesus addressed the disciples as children in John 21, 5. It says in John 21, five, Jesus therefore said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered, No. I've had that happen to me. <laughs> not very often. But sometimes you don't catch fish. But Jesus called his disciples children. They're all grown men. John calls the Christians little children, regardless of their age. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of love and care. And all of the children who are born from above have come, perfect tense, to know, have come to know the Father, meaning at conversion they came to know the Father and they continue to live knowing God And notice the fathers also. You have come to know the one who's from the beginning. Forgiveness and knowing God are new covenant promises. Yes, we need to emphasize that. I wonder if it doesn't get preached enough. We need to know what the new covenant is. I'll deal with this in applications. And we need to know what the promises of the new covenant are. And we need to live a Christian life that's centered on the promises of God. Oh, yes. I get emails. I've told you several times, my number one evangelistic plan for me is emails through the CIC website. We have thousands of readers. The number one email, I've told you before, They say, I have demons. How are you going to help me? Because of an article I wrote some years ago. They think that I somehow am an exorcist. So that gives me a chance to tell them how they overcome the evil one. That's the gospel. See, a lot of these people really aren't Christian. How do you know you have demons? Oh, I can feel them. They did this and they did that. They're in a subjective realm. So the first thing I say is what you need to do. What do I need to do? Here's what you need to do. Believe the promises of God. What? Yes, believe the promises of God. That's what you got to say to me? Yes, believe the promises of God. And what's the promise of God? You've come to know the one who's from the beginning. And you've overcome the evil one. Do you know God? Let me tell you how you can know God. And I talk about the gospel, the means of grace, the forgiveness of sins. Satan accuses us if our sins are forgiven, he can't do anything to us. So I ask these readers, are your sins forgiven? Well, why are you talking about that? I need somebody to get these demons out of me. Well, what realm are you in? You need to get into the realm of God and out of the realm of the world. I quote to them 1 John 5, 18 and 19. Oh, but sometimes, a lot of times they they drop me and they go looking for somebody else, but not always. Sometimes they come back and they say, thank you. I never understood that. Praise God. I get so excited. Oh, my sins are forgiven, and the evil one has no ground against me, and Jesus is the high priest praying for me. Yes, you get it. I love that. See, that's my version of evangelism over the Internet. And I, by the way, I thank God for the evangelists in our congregation. Have you seen some of the prayer requests and things that... I don't know who all... I know some of the you go out but I'm saying this, I thank God for you. It does me good. It really does. I get really angry about what's going on in the world. Really angry. And then the prayer thing is, we talk to some people at the Somali Mall about Christ. Isn't that better than being angry? It's a good thing. So I thank God for you. To know the Father implies knowing the Son. And this is an important term of respect for the mature people in the church and for all of us to know the one who is from the beginning. We can know God. I have here one of my scholarly sources, Dr. Akin. These two characteristics, he says, the forgiveness of sins and the knowledge of the Father are complementary. They are also necessary if one is to be part of Of the people of God. The interesting thing about these two descriptions, says Dr. Aiken, is that they mirror exactly two of the promises of the new covenant made in Jeremiah 31 31 to 34 knowledge of God and forgiveness of sins. Dear Saints, we need to thank God that we're part of the new covenant and we have forgiveness of sins. And we know God. Praise God for that. Second part of this verse. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains, mano, abides, stays put there in you. And you have had victory over the evil one. The abiding word is the key to conquering the liar now Mike was talking about this in Sunday school in John 8 if you may know Greek abide in my word you will be my disciples indeed and you will know the truth the gospel and the truth will set you free that's what Jesus said to believers so what did they do get all excited no, they got mad. Well, what are you doing, telling us we need to be free? We've never been in bondage to anybody. And they start debating Jesus. Read John eight. Very interesting. John links discipleship to abiding in Christ's word. John eight thirty-one. Abide in His word. The lies of Satan are relentless. They're continual. They get into our minds too easily, despite our best efforts. In they come. God is sick of you. You're never going to be a good enough Christian. Maybe you just thought all this up and you're not really saved. Maybe you're just religious. You're too sinful. You're too much of a failure. You'll never be good. Just forget it. It's not going to work. It's hopeless. But the fact is, if we abide in God's word and believe his promises, we can stand firm against the relentless attacks of Satan. Eric, Dalma, and I have been saying to you, and we say this when we record radio, believe the promises of God. And that will keep us strong. Maybe you want to turn to this one, 2 John 1 9. 2 John 1 9. Or two John 1 9, if you prefer that terminology. We're Americans, so we like to shorten things whenever we can. You ever notice British spelling of things? I like it in some ways. It's kind of cool. You know, you put that extra U in there on the harbor. And Americans, they'll oh, short, 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 short. Keep it short, keep it simple. 2 John 1.9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide, there's our word, in the teaching of Christ, does not have God, and the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. So there's a warning in 2 John 1.9 about going, oh, excuse me, I'm on a platform. (laughs) I did not do that because I'm old. (laughs) I'm used to the other place. We had no platform like that. (laughs) Goes too far. So is it possible to go too far? Yes. If we go beyond the teaching of Christ. Now, what is this teaching of Christ? Well, again, I think... It's a plenary genitive. Eric has explained that to you a few times. Teaching that comes from Christ and teaching about Christ. Objective and subjective ideas are there. And the teaching of Christ is a body of teaching that we have in our New Testament. And there's a terminus point there. There's not new revelations beyond what we've been given in Scripture. So going beyond Scripture is to go too far. If we abide in a teaching, we have the Father and the Son. And so the young men are strong, they abide, they have victory, and all of us need to continually abide in the truth because... Every single time we turn on the TV, somebody's lying to us. Oh, yeah. Implications and applications. Number one, new covenant promises are fulfilled in Christ. Number two, Christ both paid for our forgiveness and advocates for it. And number three, we must abide in his word and conquer Satan. You know, I think my applications need to be as simple as John's teaching. This is basic Christianity. We need it. We need it. Acts 2:38 and 39. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Okay? Notice what Peter preaches. He said to them, quote, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord Our God calls to himself. Notice what Peter preaches in the first sermon of the very early church born on the day of Pentecost. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. We need to preach the forgiveness of sins. I try to do so every time it's for me to preach. I try to always preach the forgiveness of sins. Some churches have high church liturgy, and people think, well, if they do sprinkle some water or say some things, that's going to do me some good. No, the Bible doesn't prescribe high church liturgy. The Bible prescribes the preaching Of the Word of God and the teaching of the flock the promises of God I'm telling you beloved that God has promised those who believe in him forgiveness of sins and this is not a trifle he's not requiring you to jump through hoops and see how religious you can get We don't have to show up in fancy robes and get-ups to make us look religious. We need to believe the promises of God. The new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31 is about forgiveness of sins. And that is just so important. And if we don't preach this, our preaching will be deficient. It will be very deficient. You can see this in Jeremiah 31. Let me just read it for you. You might want to turn to it. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. What God promised. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. By the way, that's the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. They broke. The new one's going to be different. Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Stop right there. That is a great covenant promise. That promise was given all the way back to the patriarchs. I will be their God, they will be my people, and I will dwell in their midst. Is God your God? Are you his people? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Those are the salient questions. Those are the new covenant promises. Verse 34, They shall not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Every single member of the new covenant knows the Lord. If you don't know him, you're not part of it. Every single member of the new covenant, sins are forgiven. If you still have your sins and you don't know the Lord, you're not part of it. I'll be talking to you about becoming part of it if you're not. Here's another promise, Ezekiel 36 26 and 27, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Notice it doesn't say, because we have the Spirit, we're hearing new revelations, and we're going here and there. No, because we've received the Spirit, God is working in our lives from the inside out. And what God has said is still the same thing, but now we care. Now we have the power to obey. Now we have the motive to obey. And God changes us. And we're going to live ways we never dreamed that we'd even want to. The day before I became a Christian, these guys I was working with, when they found out that my girlfriend was at a retreat with these Assemblies of God people. There was a church in town, Assemblies of God. That's the Bible college you went to. And they were very fundamental Christians. And they were saying, oh, those people, oh, oh. This is gonna be bad. I go what? What? Oh, they want ten percent of your money. They're gonna make you, you. Oh yeah, they're gonna give you laws and rules. Oh, it's gonna be terrible. I go ah! I was so mad. They, and they loved it. They just the more angry they could get me. They were laughing. They, they were really having a good time mocking me because my girlfriend was a Christian. But I came back a few days later to work, and I was one too. Why would I even care what God said? I went from thinking it was a horrible idea that there are rules and laws from God that we should take seriously. I thought it was awful to becoming a Christian and thinking, I wonder what God wants from me. I wonder how I could live a way that's pleasing to him. It's not onerous, is it? It's not burdensome. It's liberating. We don't have to live for the devil. Hebrews nine twenty four, I point out that not only does Jesus Christ pay for the forgiveness of our sins, he advocates for it advocate in the Greek is a legal idea, a paraclete, a a defense attorney. Jesus is our defense attorney. Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which were copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, on our behalf. Remember Pastor Eric talking about who pair, substitution on our behalf. Jesus, who ascended into heaven, who sits at the right hand of God, is advocating from this place of authority and power for us on our behalf. Continually, he ever lives to make intercession for us. And it doesn't matter how long and how vociferously the accuser of the brethren keeps on accusing. Because we have the ultimate advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Dr. William Lane, by the way, if you want to read a commentary on Hebrews, get William Lane's, it's the best. He says this, quote, The appearance of Christ in the presence of God, who pair Hamon on your behalf, provides assurance that his saving action possesses eternal validity and will secure for his people unhindered access to God as well. To see the face of God is to be certain of his presence and grace. Jesus Christ appears before the face of God on our behalf. And he assures our salvation, our forgiveness, and ultimately our glorification. It says in 1 John 2, 1, a little preview or a review in this case. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We go to God, go to the throne of grace, go to Christ. Dear Lord, help me. Oh, in the last so many years, with this kind of battle and that kind of battle, several times on the brink of death, literally. I don't know how Diane bears up people coming and telling her I may die. It's happened more than once, hasn't it? And all I can do is say, Dear Lord Jesus, help me! That's it. Help me, Lord! Help me! He's never failed me. And even had I died and gone be with him in heaven, he will still be helping me. He'll help you. There's nothing at all special about me, just one of his children. It says in John 6, 38 through 40, For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, says Jesus, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Every one of us that know Christ has been given to him by the Father. Every one the Father's given. That's you, beloved, will be raised up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. If you're hearing me today, maybe here on the internet or cable TV or whatever, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you know God? Have you turned from living for sin and self And the fleeting hopes of this world and come to him who promises to forgive your sins. He who came and was born and lived a sinless life, who died for sins and who was raised on the third day and ascended into heaven. As we're talking about his session at the right hand of God, he's coming again. Turn to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. He will raise you up on the last day. These are not just empty religious promises. You know what's really wrong with how Americans think in, in some ways? We assume that because we have pluralism, I'm glad they had that, otherwise they'd be trying to kill us as Christians, but here's what we don't want to think, because pluralism, meaning people can have whatever religion they want, does not imply that we can't decide what's right. See, we think that's all we need. Just give me the right to have my religion, whatever it is. Okay, you got it. Have your religion. I believe in the moon made out of blue cheese. That's my religion. I worship every full moon. Great. Pluralism. You have a religion. We're not going to take that away from you. But will that save you? Is there any evidence that it's true? Or ask yourself this. Is it possible to adjudicate rival religious claims to find out what is the truth can we know the truth jesus said i'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me as christians we're willing to have everything that we say and claim to be examined ask us questions don't believe it just because we say it don't just think well I'll just choose some religion. It doesn't matter which one. Find out what is true. If Jesus was raised from the dead, Christianity is true. If Jesus was not raised, we are all people most miserable. The apostle himself said that. Find out what's true. I promise you that the more you look, the more you study, you'll see that the claims of Christ are true. Come to Christ and be saved. I want to finish with this one. We mentioned it earlier. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus is the truth. The truth, as we heard in Sunday school, also denotes the gospel. Abiding in the truth is where we have victory over Satan. Are we willing to abide in the truth, love the truth, grow in the truth, obey the truth, believe the truth, preach the truth, live according to the truth? I've had people email me because they get mad at the critical issues I just had one this last week. It was unbelievable. It was so nasty. Why do you always have to know if things are true? What's wrong with you? Because the truth will set you free. The truth is the very nature of God. The truth is saving truth. The truth is sanctifying truth. The truth is healing truth. The truth never changes. The truth abides forever. There's a reason we want to know what's true. And the devil's the liar. There's a reason we don't want to be lied to. In other realms, like in commerce, people get really angry if, they li- if they're if they lied to. These people said this product will do this and that. It won't. They lied to me. I'm filing suit. Fine. But why is it important that in the realm of business and commerce, the truth be told. But when it comes to religion, it doesn't matter. All religious claims are good enough. They don't need to be true. They don't need to be false. It doesn't matter. The good Lord just wants us to be sincere. Sincerity is not a test of truth. Do you know the truth? And will you abide in it? Today, I'm so thankful to be able to share with you what we know to be true. Through Christ, our sins are forgiven. We know the Father and we have victory over the evil one. Thank the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your new covenant blessings. May we never grow tired of rejoicing in what you've done for us. And may we be bold and our proclamation of the truth of the gospel. Help us to live in this pluralistic age and still abide in your truth. Thank you, Lord, for caring about us. In Jesus' name, amen.